All right, BradCooney.com in association with HCN Networks. It's very, very honored to once again have in Mr. Michael Denon, who is a professor of physics and astronomy at UC Irvine. He's also the author of Divine Science, Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith. Professor, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's always great to be with you. All right, man. So this is your, th- I believe, your third time on the show. It's always, I think so. yeah, it's always fun, and and, and you always get a lot of listens. Um, of course, Ancient Aliens um, is also um, on your resume. You you are one of the stars of Ancient Aliens on History Channel, um, so that's always nice. So let's get into this. Talk about what's going on with you. What's the latest? I hear something about a new class you're teaching as well. Well, I'm hoping to develop a new class this summer for these these massive online open courses, the MOOCs. So these are things usually through Coursera that are free, open, you know, thousands and thousands of people can take it. Um, we'd like to do the physics of football. Now that I've, is I've interesting. Done physics of superheroes, obviously, um, various sports, but it's really cool because you see I will be hosting the new L.A. Rams training this summer. Well, that's um, uh, an opportunity for you. Uh, so the football team's right there on campus. So they'll be right there on campus. They're using our classrooms, our fields, and we're hoping to set up a deal where, you know, maybe we can actually get some footage of them training, and then I get to talk about the physics of that footage. That's interesting, man. Can you, can you get into that a little bit more, exactly what, 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 what that will entail? Well, so football's great from a physics point of view for, um, I think, two fundamental reasons. One is just all the stuff the ball does, throwing and kicking, mm-hmm. um, particularly the issue of spirals. It's kind of a unique shaped ball because mm-hmm. it's that ellipsoidal-like shape as opposed to, you know, almost every other sport, the ball's a sphere. Mm. Um, so you kind of get to talk about the impact on that, on its stability, mm-hmm. you know, why the spiral helps throwing it. Interesting. Um, kicking it. Yeah, I was about to say field goals. Different. Field goals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, and then there's just the physics of, of, of the people running into each other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, which kind of built off my, you know, past experience on doing the course on the Walking Dead and, and the physics of causing damage to zombies um, and, and the material properties. You know, obviously, I, I'm going to, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of controversy, so I'm probably going to try and avoid everything with concussions. Yeah. Um, largely because it's also not my area of expertise. That's that's a lot of biology in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the physics of linemen, you know, how to position yourself so that you actually kind of win in that, that battle between the defensive lineman getting through and the offensive lineman, mm. you know, protecting the quarterback or blocking for the runner. Um, because the, the thing that people forget is, you know, Newton's law that we always tell us equal and opposite forces between the two objects. But there's all the other forces, you know, how you stand in the ground, how you you position your body relative to their body, who who's, you know, sort of pushing up versus pushing down. Um, huh. it's, it's some very, very interesting physics in that whole dynamic between the two people going um, at each other in contact that I think would mm. be a lot of fun to get into. You know, I have a friend of mine who's a former two-time world champion boxer. His name is Jesse James Leha. And when he retired, he sat down one day and was thinking about what he wants to do for the rest of his life, because he retired fairly young. Um, he ended up getting a job with the San Antonio Spurs, the uh, NBA basketball team, um, and he implemented the boxing regiment workout to the players, and he made that oh. pitch. 
Yeah, he made that pitch and he was hired. Now he works one-on-one with Tim Duncan and, and all the players, and he has them all going to these boxing training. And maybe maybe that's something you might can consider with your physics thing. Yeah, and, no, uh, that's another aspect because the physics of training. This whole, I mean, I've gotten into this very personally because I have. I'm, I'm old enough and now I have enough hip and back injuries <laughs> that, yeah. that I worry about what exercises to do to make the pain go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and you realize how connected the body is. Right. Like the forces, you know, if you get, you know, you tweak your hip a little bit, you can get pain in your shoulder because now the muscles are all pulling in the wrong way. Yeah. Um, and so training appropriately and understanding the physics of that can make a huge difference for athletes. Absolutely. All right, so I want to talk about the book also. Um, it's really, really interesting. I read it. It's a great book. Um, first, tell, tell the listeners how the book's doing and also just touch on what, what it's about a little bit so people can yeah, grab yeah, it. I, I, I'm pleased because the book's actually selling. I've learned by tracking myself on the Amazon Author Central page I have mm-hmm. that probably most books in the world sell zero copies. <laughs> but I can have a week where I sell zero and I'm still ranked like um, 100,000th out of a million authors or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the weeks you know that you sell 10, you jump way up in the rankings. Um, but it, it's kind of nice. I'm getting a really good reception. The idea of the book, it's really, in my mind, a science outreach book to people of faith who want to understand how science can enhance their faith, how it interfaces, how it's not in contradiction to their faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the feedback I'm getting from people is they, they get it. They get that's the point of the book. Um, and I did, you know, the standard science and religion debate in the public seems to always be around evolution and creation, which right. I do touch on. But I've really felt like there's some very interesting questions just around free choice, free will, miracles, and life after death that often aren't discussed. So I have later chapters on those where the physics is maybe a little more intense and, and obviously, you know, the philosophical questions are a little more intense, but I felt it would be worth just taking it head on. And just for the listeners' sake, what is your position on life after death? Do you believe that the, that the, you know, the, the, some people call it the soul, some people call it consciousness, do you believe that that goes with us once our bodies die? I, I definitely do, and it's, it's, it's right near the end of the book for, um, besides, you know, death coming hopefully later and at <laughs> the end, kind of symbolic right. there. But um, I, I think it's the point in the book where I talk about the fact that science can't answer every question, but it can point to things. And there's, there's aspects of science where we understand how certain properties are conserved in processes even where all of the most obvious things kind of change form. And when I give public talks on this, I talk about matter and antimatter annihilating itself to produce light. You know, beforehand you have matter and antimatter, afterwards you have photons, but there's certain properties that are conserved, like the charge is always zero before and after. Um, not that I say or think that's how life after death works, but it's an analogy to the fact that there can be parts of us that are preserved even though the obvious part that we see, the physical body, stops working. Hmm. What it looks like, what it feels like, what it is, I have no idea because I haven't experienced it yet. But I do think there's good reason to believe that there's something afterwards. Just no idea what it might be. We're going to have to have you come down to one of our paranormal investigating um, one of our nights we go investigate paranormal activity. I'm on a team down here that does that in Mississippi. And okay. One of these days we'll have to bring you down as a VIP 
have a celebrity come in and 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 and, and, uh, and, and do some ghost hunting with us. <laughs> Well, you you'd be one that would definitely debunk some stuff that we think might be yeah. ghosts. Um, yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. All right, so um, fascinating fights. That's something that we were talking about last time you were on board. Yeah. Um, and also a, a cool CNN article pointed at that as well. Talk about that. Well, the, yeah, the CNN article was fun. It was um, they, they, their main interest, interestingly enough, were different ways you could become a superhero. <laughs> okay. So, which, which, you know, I, I like to pointing out radiation is not the choice <laughs> <laughs> don't go that route no the, probably the least scientific way to become a superhero is to blast yourself with a lot of radiation right. when i teach my students the class we talk about how you might briefly gain superpowers before the radiation totally melts or kills you right uh, but yeah so the cnn article was a lot about that and i and one of the things that was nice was kind of a flashback for me back to when i did spider-man tech for the history channel because I liked in the reboot of Spider-Man where they switched from a radioactive spider to a genetically engineered one that infected Peter Parker with a virus. Mm. Because genetic engineering is both exciting and scary at the same time. I mean, that's where um, there's obviously physical limits in what humans might become, but it's really fascinating to think about down the road what that might actually do, both good and, and, and negative. Um, with fascinating fights, we're, we're having a lot of fun because we actually managed to start season two where, again, it's, this is where there's a panel of three or four of us and we argue over who's going to win in a battle and we mm -hmm. pick random pop culture icons. And we've had some fun ones this season. I really like flashbacking to Inspector Gadget versus Batman 66. <laughs> um, so kind of... There's, there's a little more silliness. We also did Mario Mario versus Link, so you got the video game aspect going. Wow. Um, where I, a spoiler alert, I reveal how bad I am at video games. Ah, okay then. And, they, and, they, and, the, and the people can see this on YouTube, right? Right, so this is all on YouTube, and it's now, or, there is a fascinatingfights.com website that you can start and go to all the episodes from. Awesome. Um, and then we hope to be, we will be actually doing a live panel at the Long Beach Comic Con in September. We don't know the exact date yet, but it's going to be fun, I think. Well, you need to shoot me that email so I can get that up on the website once you yep. get that locked in. As soon in. as we have the date locked in, I'll let you know. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's touch on ancient aliens. There's a lot of ancient aliens fans out there. I'm one of them. I know a ton of people that watch the show, um, and you are on that show quite a bit. And yep. um, they, you know, they got the new season going. So touch on that. To talk, just talk a little bit about your experience on ancient aliens and, and what's the latest there.
you can make a battery sticking two pieces of metal and a lemon. Um, Interesting. Well, didn't, they, didn't they find a battery or, or they're what they think is a battery? Something that was very much like a battery in Egypt. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think what you get to talk about, though, is the challenge isn't the battery. The challenge is what you do with the electricity once you mm-hmm. have it. Um, if you think about it, I think there's a reason we had sort of water and steam-based technology for so much longer than electrical technology. It's easier to figure out how to hook the water wheel to something. Sure. You know, if you want to grind wheat, you just pour water through your wheel and it spins and you make the grinder. Um, to really build a good electrical motor just takes a lot more design and thought. And if you've got the water wheel, it's not clear why you would be motivated to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, until you reach much later in history where there's more people, you've got cities, you're under more pressure, you want these new inventions. And then it becomes worth the time and effort to think hard about making the electrical devices. And then you realize, oh, wow, it all takes off. Why do you think certain civilizations are smarter than other ones? Why do, why do you think there was so much advanced technology in Egypt and even down in, in the Yucatan? I guess the, the Mayans are pretty pretty up there as well. Right. Well, my sense, and again, more, I'm, I mean, a casual historian versus a serious one, but you look at them, and a lot of it always comes down to, do you have enough people, do you have enough resources that you get enough people, I hate to say it, who are rich and have leisure time? Sure. Right. You know, that's really where you start seeing the breakthroughs, right? If everybody is just struggling to stay alive, um, you, you have very smart people. They just don't have the time to do stuff with it. Right. Um, which is why I worry about TV every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> I think it has the opposite. Good right? point. A lot of very smart people who get distracted watching the TV. Yeah, and smartphones. And smartphones, exactly. Interesting. Um... Anything on the show on Ancient Aliens that's made you maybe a little bit less skeptic that there may be some, some uh, you know, some, some extraterrestrial involvement at some point? So it's funny, you know, in terms of extraterrestrial involvement in the past, um, I even actually, I got a great, I had a great dinner with, with Giorgio, actually. We actually got that mm-hmm. dinner about a month ago. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those fascinating things that you go far enough back in the past and everybody's speculating. Sure. Right? I mean, you're, you're doing the best you can with minimal information. And, you know, I can't really necessarily disprove his point of view that because that there might be evidence or options that aliens helped. I mean, for me, it's, it's a different thing. And, and I, I think we'll chat a little bit about exoplanets and sure. stuff. I, I just think... The, the timing is kind of wrong. You know, people were smart enough, so I see no evidence that people couldn't have done it. And I certainly think there's extraterrestrial life out there, but I don't think it's going to be very far off in its technical, technological development from where we are. Hmm. And so at some point in the future, I think we'll all start meeting, but I think it's a future thing, not something that's happened in the past. What is your rebuttal to the argument that certain things that's been discovered can only see, be seen from the air, like down in Chile, some of those runways, it looks like runways, it looks like birds and huge, you know, symbols that can only be seen from high altitudes. Right. So for me, a lot of that is just, um, I mean, people were fascinated all the time with the sky, with what's up there, you know, picturing big, sure. you know, patterns in the sky. And I think people are very, very good with scale and design and 
they just got really smart and they wanted to make big things that can be seen from the sky even if they hadn't met anyone who came from the sky right mm. I mean, all throughout human history you know we've pictured the gods up in the sky and coming down so and I think that's natural even if you haven't necessarily been visited by extraterrestrials mm. but I can certainly understand the other point of view right I mean if, if, if there was any sort of evidence that maybe people had experienced something directly coming that might be it um, again we, we have meteorites and comets and things particularly the meteorites falling through the sky which who knows what people thought they were mm -hmm. and then wanting to project their images up to whatever was throwing those big hot rocks at them well, what about the argument like a minute ago you mentioned that you believe that if you know in the future perhaps civilizations will, will meet each other um, but you don't think that um, the the technology was around, you know, of other planets was around like millions of years ago. But what about the argument that we're relatively new, and some of the planets that formed, you know, billions of years before Earth, well, why wouldn't they have a jump start on us as far as technological? No, it's certainly possible. It, it, this is again not the world's most scientific argument, but. Sure. One of the things when you look at it, um, one of the physics I do is, is called nonlinear dynamics, and we study sort of the natural ways by which complex structures emerge. So what do I mean by that? If you take water and heat it, if you heat it uniformly, it just remains water doing nothing interesting. If you heat it from below and cool it from above, it forms complex rolls that make patterns. And we understand the conditions under which those would form, um, and there's very precise predictions you can make and how long it takes for them to form and when they do. And I think the formation of life follows similar complex rules. We just don't know what they are yet. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so this is, again, speculation from one data point, which you should never do. Um, given how long it took for the right type of sun and the right type of planets to develop in the right zone and then for life to evolve out of that on our planet, I would expect the time scales to be very similar pretty much anywhere in the galaxy. So even though there are stars older than us, there are certain planets older than us, they tend to have a different structure and relationship than our planet does. So that's a good segue. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, so I would just expect places with intelligent life took roughly the same time we did. Now, even if they're off by, say, a million years, that's still not long enough for them to have then traveled to our past millions of years in the past. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's why I think we're, we're kind of on roughly the same trajectory. Which is a good segue into the um, Kepler telescope and the exoplanets that we're discovering. This is a pretty right. cool announce by, announcement by NASA um, a few weeks back. Um, it talked about finding, I forgot how many, but it was a pretty good little number of of um, rocky planets in the Goldilocks zone. Oh, um, yeah. No, yeah. I think we, we have now made it very, it's been made very clear. What, so scientists, we tend to be very conservative. We won't say something exists until we see it. Right, right. But, I mean, I've always, so this is one place where I get to say I was right in predicting something. Mm -hmm. You know, for my whole life, I felt there's a lot of empty space out there. If there weren't planets like ours and life like us, it's a lot of wasted space. Right, absolutely. <laughs> I know that's not a scientific statement, but it's, I think, a very good guess. One of my favorite lines in the, in the movie Contact, where, where one of them, I think it was, was it Jody Foster or the other guy, said it would be an awful waste of real estate if, if there was no life out there. Right. 
you know, we, what's, I think, more impressive to me, I mean, it's very impressive the number of planets we're now finding in, in the Goldilocks zone and that could be potential um, candidates for life. What's really impressive is that our tools have finally reached the level of sophistication that we can actually see them conclusively. Because it is very hard to actually detect an Earth-sized rocky planet mm -hmm. around a star. You're relying on, you know, the amount of light that that planet blocks as it goes around the star and having enough measurement of, and having a telescope that's stable enough can just look at that star for long enough that it can measure these small changes in the amount of light emitted and know it's not just the natural variability of the sun. We all know, you know, our sun changes how much light it emits and it, you know, varies in its energy mm -hmm. over time. Um, and so all of that is incredibly hard to do, and it's really impressive that we can do it now. And I think the next step, which is even harder, is to measure the signatures we would expect from life that's kind of similar to ours, you know, oxygen and water. Methane. And Maybe methane. I think that's... Methane, exactly. Now, just, just so my listeners that aren't really that dialed into this topic, they use the, the Kepler telescope, they use... What you said was, I think it's called the wobble effect or something like that, where... Well, they, they mostly use, so there's two, they, they mostly use the transit effect, which is the planet moving in front of the sun or star, right. block the light. The wobble effect is where you don't actually visibly see the planet, you just see the effect of its gravity of its Right, world. right. Make the, the, the star wobble a little in its motion. So if there was an... Kepler may actually use both, but the main one Kepler uses is the light. So if there was an astronomer on another world, and they were looking back at our solar system, um, and this is just for people who aren't really dialed into this, so if there was an astronomer on another world looking back, and they were looking towards our solar, solar system, it would be easier for them to see the Jupiters and the Neptunes and the Saturns than it would be the Venuses, the Mars, and Earth. Exactly. The first thing they would detect is like a Jupiter or a Saturn. Mm -hmm. they might, that might be big enough. They're, they're, the, the gravitational effects of those they would detect first, and certainly the lighted block they would detect first. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then next would come you know, something like Mars and Earth. Right. So how far are we, do you think, from actually getting a telescope and actually being able to see the disk of the planet, actually see the planet. To see the planet is probably, oh, that's probably, well, you know, it depends what you mean by see. To see it the way we think of looking at things like the planet. Sure, like when I, when I poke my telescope in the sky, I can look at, I can see Mars, I can see. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. So to see the actual planet um, is probably fairly far in the future, and we'll probably take telescopes that are like Hubble, but better, you know, above the atmosphere. Um, what we're going to look for is signatures in the light that comes from the planet. Mm -hmm. We're going to look for that first, but we'll be able to actually, so what you usually do is you want to detect the gases and the composition of the atmosphere. How do they do that? Can you, do you, do you have... Can you explain that? Like, through, what are these computers and like how do, how can they tell what kind of atmosphere? You know, or, or yeah, can, you know what are the compositions from? Basically, at the color of light that comes out. So, if you you know when you burn when you burn various metal and it glows at different um, colors as you get it to different mm -hmm. uh, temperatures, or um, if you shine light through a gas like hydrogen. It absorbs certain colors preferentially to others, so the light that comes through is a particular color. Think of, oh, here's a good example. Think of most fluorescent.
to make it white. They tend to be colored mm -hmm. because they're using particular gases that only glow in certain colors. Yeah. And so what happens is the starlight passes through the planet's atmosphere. The atmosphere absorbs certain colors depending on what gases are in the, the atmosphere. And when the light gets to us and we basically send it through a prism and look to see what colors are there, and if certain colors are missing, we know it went through, say, methane or oxygen or water. Let me ask you this. If, and let's go back to our, our, my, my analogy before. Um, an, an, a, right. an extraterrestrial astronomer was on another world, and let's say they looked at our solar system and then they looked at the composition of the atmosphere of Earth. And let's say they did that um, five million, six million years ago. And then if they looked at it again more recently, would they be able to tell that intelligent life like us has risen and got industrial, would they be able to tell the differences in the atmosphere? They certainly would. We sent enough um, material up. Um, I mean, they would certainly know something was going on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the challenges is a lot of the waste we send up, because our, our, our industry is still very um, carbon burning based, which is also a lot of what Ironically, burning you know coal and oil and wood releases a lot of the same stuff that animals release when they just eat and make waste. Right, right, right. So they would definitely know that life's going on, and you know it just depended a little bit on how closely their technologies followed ours and what they're comparing it to. Mm. Ironically, as, as we go to more and more. You know, maybe they jumped quickly for various reasons to a very wind, water-based power source, mm -hmm. right? That's not going to generate a lot of waste, so they may not think of that as, as a technological signal. Hmm. Um, so that's where it gets interesting. But they would certainly, I think, if, if they were basically carbon-based life forms like we were, they would notice a lot of the, you know, particularly the increase in oxygen that came from plants, you know, processing photosynthesis and things like that. Hmm. When we look at these planets and, and, we, and, and, and as, as, as we go forward and find more of the rocky worlds and Goldilocks zones, will we have the technology to be able to tell if there's life on one of those planets? You know, I think we, we are pretty close. Our, what it requires is having a telescope that can, can collect enough light that when you basically send it through the prism and split it up, you still have enough signal. Um, one of the nice things is we're planning to build um, probably the, the, one of the biggest telescopes ever uh, out on one of the mountains in Hawaii. It's under design and construction. Um, and it, when that one gets built, I think we certainly will have a telescope big enough to do that sort of work. Well, it's going to be land-based? That's going to be a land-based one because there you're really just worried about collecting the light and you don't mind that it goes through the atmosphere some if you're ah, okay. a collector. The atmosphere tends to distort images, yep. but we can correct for that distortion. And if you're just looking for the type of light you're getting through, it's not so bad. What do you think the first measure would be if we did find a planet that, that we're, we're relatively confident that it, it is showing signs that there's life on it? Um, what's next? So the SETI search is going on looking in sort of the radio and electromagnetic spectrums where you might expect signals. Mm -hmm. Don't really know where to point. Yeah, so you get to narrow down. A planet that's a likely candidate, now you can actually point the radio telescopes somewhere useful. 
and look for a real sort of signal of a similar electronic-based technology like we have, which is probably, you know, when we look at the what we understand about physics, there's really the, the most common force in the universe is the electromagnetic force, I would argue. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's highly unlikely that that wouldn't be a part of a technology. Right, right. How do you think we would send our first hello? Do we have laser technology to help us with that, or what do you, what do you think they would use? You know, I, I think, um, you know, it's just basically, and any telescope is also an antenna, um, radio telescope, so I think it's just turning it from listening to projecting, and, you know, unfortunately that hello will take a very long time, but it'll go faster than any spaceship. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's funny, when people think about lasers, you don't really need the laser per se, it's just kind of the... It, lasers are nice, but the radio telescopes will be able to generate a large, powerful signal, and it's really just encoding it and hoping, you know, one of the great philosophical questions is, you know, would people really use the same mass everywhere? Right. You know, how, how absolute is mass? Yep. Um, and that's the most likely way to communicate. And just because there's... sent out in the various probes we sent in the past. And just because we find a planet that, that has the signatures of life doesn't mean that it's intelligent either. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I, I, again, this is where I, I... I often wonder, and I think it's kind of true, when you look at Earth, you know, intelligence developed. Um, there's no evidence that it's not the common end root of life. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's likely if you have the right conditions, you will get intelligent life. What do you think, what, this is, you know, of course, a speculative question, but what do you think the odds that we may either be contacted by extraterrestrials or have a major breakthrough in that field in the next 50 to 100 years? Well, I think we'll certainly have a breakthrough in terms of what we've been talking about now, detecting likely candidates of planets. Um, in terms of contacting, I suspect, that, that's much harder to predict, but I suspect that's probably more in the thousand-year time scale from my perspective, just knowing where we are in technology. But that, that has a bigger, what we would call in science, error bar to it, because, you know, like I said, if somebody was about a million years ahead of us, they might be on their way already. Yeah, true. What about government cover-ups? Um, let's just hypothetically say, you know, we, we were contacted. Um, do you think the government shares that with the peoples, or do you think that's that they keep it quiet under wraps? How do you think they would handle something like that? You know, I, this is, again, I'm, I'm sure the government has been able to keep some things secret, but they don't seem very good at that. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. <laughs> you know, and, and this is something that would be even harder, right? I mean, it, I, I think about it, and it makes for great stories, and it makes for great movies, but I just find it really hard to imagine. I mean, I love Men in Black, but I just, you know, to be able to keep something like that so secret is, is just yeah. hard to imagine. I suspect, um, you know, partly just knowing, you know, whoever is contacting us probably doesn't want it secret either, right? No. So. You know, Stephen Hawking brought up a pretty good, <laughs> something that people need to think about, Stephen B. Hawking, of course. Um, we may, Maybe we need to be careful what we wish for, because as pissed off as things are on this planet, um, doesn't necessarily mean that the, if we do find intelligent life that they're nice. No, it, it's certainly true. 
it's really hard. I mean, if you look at it, we don't have a great track record exactly. of the human beings that discover other human beings being nice to them. Well, yeah, it's, it's all about conquering. <laughs> it's all about conquering and colonizing. But, you know, I, it, it's a, it is an interesting and weird thought, right? Part of me, and this is often, there's sort of two tracks in which science fiction goes. You know, one is the classic, it's about conquering. The other is, if you think about the amount of resources required to pull off interstellar travel, mm -hmm. you have to reach a certain level of cooperation within yourself first. Yeah, true. And so you could make the argument that just the mere act of being able to get your act together... <laughs> Yeah. Um, to Good go point. on the planet requires a certain worldview that's very different than the conquering worldview. Unless, of course, you are the Borg and you just want to assimilate everybody. And, exactly. <laughs> uh, like you said, it takes two roots, right? Yeah. There's, there's, there's the, the root I'm really afraid of, and then there's the optimist. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, man, I always, always have fun when you come on board, man. I really appreciate you doing this. Oh. Yeah, man, I appreciate that, and I want you to come back again soon, uh, whenever something, you know, uh, comes up that you want to talk about, we'd love to have you back on, man. Sounds good, well, if the football thing takes off, I think I'll, I'll give you a call, because that'll be fun to chat and let you know what it was like. Awesome, I appreciate it, bud.